Bordy. Hello and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. I'm absolutely delighted to have Franz Ferdinand's Alex Kapranos on the podcast. Alex and I talk growing up half Greek, the rock and roll side of chefing, Ethiopian artworks, getting arrested as a spy in Moscow, being rushed to hospital in Budapest, learning how to say I have a penis allergy in every language, breaking down in a larder on his way to his first Glastonbury aged 18 and so much more. Alex Kapranos is on the big travel podcast. Actually, now I'm looking at your painting. That's really good. Who's that? Oh, oh well, uh, travel. That, that, that comes from traveling, actually. That's, um, it, it's from Ethiopia. I, I was in Addis Ababa uh, a few years ago, and um, I, I really like Ethiopian art. I don't know if you can see, like, from the painting, like, I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, they have this very particular way of painting, which is quite two-dimensional and uh, it, it, a lot of the icons were painted like, like that originally and it kind of went through all throughout art generally. I remember years ago seeing the painting in uh, the British Museum. Have you ever seen the one of the Battle of Adwa? It's like a huge painting. But that's what that is. It's the painting of the Battle of Adwa. And um, I was in a, in a shop where the guy was like painting like modern icons and uh, I was telling the guy that I'd seen this painting, how much I liked it. And he said, oh, my great-grandfather was at the Battle of Allah and um, uh, he painted the battle. And I was like, oh, no way, that's incredible. And uh, uh, so I've got it somewhere. I've got it. And uh, he got the painting out. And then he said, do you want to buy it? And I was like, oh, <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> and uh, so like, he was like, I mean, yeah, so that's how it ended up here. Yeah. That's amazing. It's kind of like an Ethiopian and Guernica looking at it. It's it, it is kind of like like what what's fascinating. I don't know if you can see, like you've got the um the Italian troops there on the right. Uh, and they've all got just they're in profile, they all have one eye, whereas Ethiopian troops all have mm-hmm. two eyes. And it's because the, the one eye was a sign of evil. And so like, that's how they represented the, the, the evil nature of the Italians. But it's a massive battle as well, because it was like, it was the, the Ethiopian, it was the, the resistance to uh, sort of European imperialism. And it was like the only, it was like, what was the name of the Emperor Menelik? I think it was Emperor Menelik. Uh, he, um, uh, yeah, uh, defeated the, the Italians. And it was one of the few examples of like an African nation totally standing up to the Europe. And the other thing is, I don't know if you can see in the top corner up there, the guys are the kind of like square heads. Mm. They are the patriarchs of the, uh, what do you call it, the, the Ethiopian church. Is that the Coptic church they call it? And, yes, uh, it is, yeah. Yes, the Coptic, and they're literally going into battle with the Ark of the Covenant to bring them, I guess, power and luck and God being on their side and all that sort of thing. And I think uh, in Ethiopia it was considered that that was the reason why they, they won the battle because... God with them. Yeah. God was on their side. one painting. It's funny, actually, that I love the way that we've just launched into it already, but it's, I am recording, so we might as well do that. But actually, Ethiopia was the last um, place I went to yeah. pre-pandemic, like the, you know, the last major place. And it's a surprising country, isn't it? Don't you uh, think? I, I loved Ethiopia. I, I found it amazing. Uh, like, so culturally and historically rich. Um Really beautiful as well. Uh, did, did you go to Harar as well when you were over there? I didn't. I just had a. Uh, I had to go and interview a supermodel who was amazing at this uh, wow. factory in Addis Ababa. Addis Ababa, Leah Kabide. Uh, she's stunning and, and just fabulous. Right, and she, right. uh, we went to this beautiful fabrics factory where she makes a lot of her products. And oh, wow. it was a factory sort of undersells it because it was a collection of beautiful, low, whitewashed buildings with uh, old women in singing as they made their their fabrics as they weaved the weavers all singing it was just incredible it was the most beautiful experience and actually doing my research on you I, I uh, found that you said that one thing you you loved uh tradition that you loved when you were traveling was the Ethiopian coffee ceremony and they did yes. that you know the singing and the did you do that as well yes yeah did, did they do everything with where they they burn the frankincense sense and you smell incense while you drink the coffee it's totally incredible like in such a um, such a smart uh sophisticated um 
assault on the senses, you know, like, 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 so like combining the, the sense of smell and taste simultaneously and also the atmosphere of the room and the fire, you know, like, uh, it, there are so, so few moments in life where all of your senses are engaged simultaneously like that. I, I, I really, really loved it. Also how ancient it is as well. Like, and, and how, how truly old it is. And, um, yeah, I, I loved Ethiopia. I, I'd really like to go back as well. And the reason I, I was originally drawn there, um, was partly through, I'd always known of it through, through school and history. Like I always found um, Haile Selassie fascinating and uh, um, the, again, him standing up to the Italians uh, and, and the whole failure of the League of Nations. Um, it, like, like really interesting. So it had always been in my mind. Then I got into Ethiopian music and, and uh, I, I really love Ethiopian music. And that's one of the reasons why I went over with a, a group of other musicians uh, to learn a bit more about Ethiopian music and, and culture. And wow, what a, what a what a trip that was. Yeah, It's because many of us have this vision of Ethiopia through through Bob Geldof and the, oh, what were the, um, who was the famous BBC presenter at the time? Oh, yes. Uh, biblical yeah. fields of disaster, big, biblical scenes of disaster, wasn't it? And that's, you see, it is, is this arid country, but of course the famine was a political political famine and it's actually this beautiful green stunning country it, it absolutely is yes it, it, I was kind of quite surprised by that, how verdant it really is and one of my again one of my overwhelming senses in my memory when I recall my time being there is uh, the smell of um, the rain hitting the earth hitting the hot earth and what a distinctive smell and very different from like uh, rain on a summer's day in England or anything like that. You know, it, it, it's 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 a, a truly distinctive spot. But yes, yeah, incredibly green, luscious, rich, and a horrible tragedy that that was in the eighties. And as you say, a political tragedy. And what's awful as well is that so much of the funding that was raised at that time didn't go where it should have gone either. You know, it was absolutely. Uh, and also culturally, I, I find it terrible because. Our perception of the country has been, or of Ethiopians has been as as victims, uh, which is, I don't know, it, 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 it's kind of unsavory to compartmentalize an entire nation and history as merely victims. Uh, and um, yeah, going over there to visit it and to experience the, the, the culture and meet the people, uh, it, yeah, it really did sort of, highlight how absurd that kind of perception of a country is. You're also very in influenced by music when you travel, aren't you, and, and bring back instruments? I, I do, I do. I, I always try and bring bring back something that, that, that I can that's uh, different countries will have different sounds and, and things. And it's, it's always good to look for inspiration. And for me, that's a, a better souvenir than a T-shirt or, or, or a snow globe. I, I remember uh, bumping into, oh, what's his name? Joey Santiago, picks in Austin, Texas. And we, we played some shows of them. And uh, I, I, I sort of uh, bumped into him. This is really early on when we first started touring. And uh, I said, oh, hey, hey, Joey, how you doing? And he's like, good. I said, what, what are you up to? He's like, Oh, I'm just off to buy a snow globe. I was like, what? In Texas? So yeah, yeah, you get them everywhere. And he's like, why are you buying a snow globe? I said, well, I buy one everywhere I go. That's my thing. That's what I collect. And it's true. Like when you try, we all have like different things that we, we, we kind of collect when we're into for, for me, musical instruments has, has always been an important thing. Like, and, and because it's, it's a good way of, finding a little bit more about the culture of a place as well as understanding the music of a place, because that says so much of the character of a, of a country when you're there. So I do have a big collection of odd stringed instruments uh, and percussion, particularly Latin America, is amazing for percussion. I, I remember when I was in Colombia, picking up these particularly wonderful maracas with the name uh, Testiculus de Toros. <laughs> As a Spanish speaker, I know exactly. But yeah, uh, right, okay. Well, that's what they're literally made from. They're literally made from the... They're actually made from bulls. The bulls testicles. Well, not the bulls, but more, more the container. Right, the <laughs> container. It's, it's so early in the conversation to move to uh, to the bulls testicles. No, but I like that. <laughs> right, I know. And do they have a particularly... Eventually. Yeah, exactly. We'll get to that at the end of it. Is that, do they have a particularly good consistency to make a musical instrument in the bulls testicles? They do sound great. I don't know what they put yeah. in them but they, they do sound really good and 
quite often, you know, you know, when a particular instrument is part of a, a nation's musical culture, they just get it right. You know, like, like the most basic ones, they just get it really, really right. And those maracas are such a part of Colombian music that, yeah, they, they, they just work really, really, really well. And they make a good story as well. <laughs> I once brought a uh, sitar back from, my brother's a professional musician. And I once, when I, the wow. first time I went to India, I was like, I must buy him a sitar. And I got him one, I think it's made from a, a vegetable, isn't it? Is it a gourd, possibly? It's a gourd, that's right. Gourd, yeah. yeah. And yeah. Um, it had a double Good for some reason. It had one at the base, but also one at the top. A resonator at the top. Wow. Amazing. A resonator. Thank you. As a, a non-musician, I didn't know that. And uh, I managed to take it all the way back from India. And the Indian flight was the one I was, you know, possibly judgmentally worried about. I thought somebody is going to smash mm. it here. And people were looking at me at the airport thinking, what the hell she got? You know, when you see people with like golf clubs or, you yeah. know, yes. random yeah, shapes, yeah. you're like, trying to figure it out. And people were looking at me trying to figure it out with the, the two bulb things. And I managed to get it all the way back to England intact. And then I took it over to Spain to my brother and British Airways, who I love, you know, they're very nice, smashed the shit out of it. Oh, no. Oh, no. Tragedy. <laughs> so he lives in LA, my brother. And for years, he's trying to find somebody to repair the gourd or whatever it is right, of, okay. of the bowl but he has it as decoration now uh, and it right, looks amazing right. it looks really good I, I, i'm sure somebody i mean if you look back to india i'm sure probably get it repaired very easily but um, i need yeah. to take it i need that's a good excuse to go back um so i'm going to talk you going back I, i'm going to take you back to uh to growing up which you did uh mainly in scotland didn't you but is your is it your dad who's greek yeah yeah my dad's greek my my, my dad I grew up in Piraeus until he was about 10. Then he came over for a summer holiday to South Shields, which is where my mother's from, to stay with his aunt, and somehow never ended up going back. Um, it's various complicated family things, but he would go back in summers, but like he, he ended up moving to um, uh, South Shields. So yeah, like my, my early, early childhood was in the northeast of England, and then uh, Edinburgh and Glasgow, and I would go back to Greece a lot when I was a kid to to see my grandparents and my other relatives over there. It's nice that you had that connection. Sometimes, sometimes with, you know, I come from an immigrant family myself. Sometimes they're completely, you know, never to be seen again. You know, sort of right. That's all behind me. But it's nice that you had your that connection. What what memories do you have from going to uh, Greece as a child? Yeah, it, it, it is good because I mean, even now for me, I still find like a big connection with my my Greek heritage and my, my Greek family, but I don't have the language. And that feels like a, a, a big distance, but I have a little bit, I have a little bit. And I, I do have very, very, very good memories of going back to Greece. Even as a kid being like aware of how socially and culturally different Greece was. And the thing that always struck me and the thing I loved about going to Greece was uh, the way that people ate their food and how different it was from England. <laughs> like, like food in food in uh, England and then Scotland seemed to be <laughs> something that was endured that had to be done. <laughs> like, whereas, whereas going to Greece, that, that seemed to be. I, I, it has changed obviously in recent years. Like like food is. We've had an incredible revolution in the UK in, in recent years. But certainly when I was a kid growing up in the seventies and the eighties, it was pretty bleak. And but Greece. It was a social event and it was so rich and shared and the flavors were vibrant and everybody sat around the table. And I guess that was the big thing that was different. You know, in the UK, food was always on your plate and it was a, a selfish experience in many ways. Or a, selfish is the wrong word. It, it, it was a, a, um, a, an isolated experience because... Even if you were sitting at the table, your plate was yours and that, that was it. Whereas in Greece, everything was in the middle and everybody would be reaching over, putting the salt on the, on, on the food in the middle. And, and, and also there was a, a tolerance of children, not, not a tolerance of children, that's the wrong word, like a celebration of children at the table, which I really loved as a kid being in Greece. Whereas in the UK, you had to sit still and be quiet. And that was what was expected of you uh, in, in Greece your love of life and energy and vibrancy was was enjoyed and uh, yeah I really like that did it make you stand uh, out when you back home did it make you stand out in a good way did you like being a little bit foreign as it were or or, or try and sort of to, to hide it in a sense no I, I was always quite happy and and, and really proud of, of, of my Greek uh, heritage and, and, and my Greekness 
Um, but when I was a kid, I was quite blonde. So like a lot of people didn't believe it, <laughs> you know, like, but even my dad, he's not, he's not particularly, my grandmother was very dark, but my, my grandfather's side were quite blonde. And there's, there's a set of Greeks who were, were quite blonde. So, but people would often say to me, and I would get this in Greece as well. And I still get it when I go over like, like, you can't be Greek. You don't look Greek. And that always kind of like makes me feel a little bit sad inside. You know, it's like, like, well, I, I bloody well am. You just have to deal with it. Right? You know? Um, but I, I, I know that when I used to go over as a kid uh, and my, my grandmother used to like showing me off, uh, she used to like show me off to all of all of her pals because they used to have this very you know like kind of whitish blonde hair that that, that uh, uh, kids sometimes have and uh, yeah she used to show me off to all her pals just because I looked so bizarre. <laughs> Thank you. They do. They celebrate. I, want, I love that wonderful Mediterranean. You know, let's go out. Let's bring the kids out. Let's stay out all night. Let's you know that let's include everyone. And it is really nice, like especially now as a parent. Um, yes. You know, going over there. Um, you know, I spend a lot of time in Spain where I grew up, and it's actually it's oh, really right, liberating. Okay. You can actually go up and just sort of leave the kids to bugger off and play, and there's yeah. be loads yeah. of strangers carrying them around somewhere. You know, in a good yes. way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, it's, it's totally true. And, and like, there is a, a an expectation to like interact with strangers as well, and and it makes for a oh, I don't know a, a very easy sociability, which which I really like. They call people third culture kids, people that have grown up with that um, sense of another country, even if you haven't grown up in that country, because it does. Oh. I think it does give you a little bit something extra, doesn't it? Because in, here in the UK, you know, a lot of the time, like the kids are, with that whole sort of seen and not heard thing, you know, don't really look the adults in the eye. But um, certainly when I moved to Spain at the age of seven, it felt like everyone was a lot more confident than me out there. Yeah. I've never heard that term, third culture. That's really interesting because... So sometimes like, like it's a little hard for me to get my head around it. Um, uh, and, and so like what my identity is. And uh, I, I remember a couple of years ago, uh, like just uh, 2019 before the pandemic, like April, that sort of time, just going over to uh, Athens and spending a bit of time there on my own and just trying to absorb it and trying to like, so like on my own, like, like so sort of get a feel for what the place is and like, and where I sit amongst it. Because you do have a strange perspective. It's, it, it is a particularly strange perspective because you are of the place and outside the place simultaneously. And so you have, a, you have an insight that you can only have uh, as somebody who's like, you know, talking with my dad who grew up there and like understanding cultural elements that most tourists wouldn't have, but not having grown up there as well and, and seeing it from an outside of too. Yeah, it's very interesting. You mentioned food there and uh, growing up, uh, food became quite important to you, didn't it? Because you became a chef. And uh, interesting what you were saying about Scotland and in fact, the UK wide, I think in the in the 70s, indeed the 80s, we did have a bit of a crap reputation. And, and Scotland's, I think, in, endured a little bit longer than that, you know, sadly with the old uh, <laughs> no vegetables, deep fried Mars bars cliche. Um, yeah. So tell, tell me a little about your, your early sort of chefing experience. I, I did, yeah, yeah. Like, um, I had various jobs, like over the years. I left home to like um, be able to pay my rent from the band, uh, but quite often I did work as a chef, and I, I loved it. I, I, I worked in quite a few different places, and uh, yeah, I, I, I like the the atmosphere of a kitchen, and I think I like the atmosphere of the kitchen because kitchens tend to attract the same kind of freaks and misfits that you get <laughs> yeah. in the world of rock and roll. You yes, know, like, they do. Like, like the oddball characters who can't really live a regular nine to five existence or can't keep a job down, particularly for a long time, particularly and who often who travel as well. Cause like, if you can chef, you can go wherever you want in the world. You know, they're, they're very easily transferable skills. And yeah, there's a, there was also a lot of, um, how can I put it? Like the rock and roll indulgences, shall we say, uh, amongst um, uh, the kind of folk that you would meet in the kitchen. Uh, so I, I loved it. And a, a lot of the formation of our band came about in the kitchen as well. There was a, there was a branch of the Groucho Club opened up in Glasgow in the early 2000s. It was, in fact, it was the year 2000. And I got a job as a chef in the kitchen there. and my friend Bob was at the art school uh, at that time looking for a, a, a part-time job. And so I got him a job as a dishwasher. And because I was 
at that time, like doing the kind of pastry chef kind of stuff, like taking care of the desserts, I would be the last person to leave at the end of the night. You know, when there's a couple sitting there enjoying their romantic night and like drawing it out and, and savoring every last moment of it. There's always some poor sod in the kitchen like, like waiting to give them their dessert. And that was me and Bob because he had to wash the plates afterwards. And so during those moments, we would sit there and drink the cooking brandy and talk <laughs> about what we would do if we got a band together. And those conversations turned from what we would do if we got a band together to what we're going to do when we get a band together. So yeah, like I have very fond memories of working in that kitchen particularly and hanging out with Bob and the other characters there as well too, but specifically Bob and those conversations that we had because yeah, they really did form who we, who we are, who we were and, and what we made in the end. There's probably a couple of couples out there who you can directly thank for putting the band together because they were lingering <laughs> too long yes. over their first dates. They're yeah. probably divorced by now. You know, it's gone terribly yeah. wrong for oh, them, no, actually. No. You know. I, I, yeah, yeah. Those great, great romances over self-sourcing chocolate puddings. That was always the biggest challenge. We used to have this thing on the, the menu, which, you know, those kind of like, it's like a like an upside down pudding kind of a thing where it's got a fondant middle. Uh, I remember the timing. It's a souffle, the- a souffle, no? It's like a souffle kind of thing. Yes, yes, yes. I I can't cook, but I can't. I'm good at eating. It it was like like a souffle principle, except it was softer on the inside. It was like made with a a, a ganache type center. So that, and you had to get the timing exactly right, the temperature exactly right, so that it formed a lovely crust on the outside. But when you tapped it with a spoon, the whole thing collapsed and all this gooey inside came out. Are you sure, really sure it wasn't a deep five miles bar? It definitely was not a different one. Although there was like uh, some Michelin starred restaurant in Scotland that did something like ironic uh, deconstruction of the deep fried Mars bar a few years ago. Um, but, I quite uh, fancy so, one actually. I see absolutely nothing wrong with one, but I haven't uh, I haven't tried it yeah, out. They're actually pretty tasty. You know, they, they, well, not bad. Yeah, it's funny. I was in Barcelona, not Barcelona, Madrid recently and Seville recently. And in Seville, in southern Spain, uh, you have all of this there's a lot of fried seafood and I absolutely love it. And I was there with my girlfriend and we were like uh, packing into like a, a big portion of this stuff. And I was thinking like, am I just loving this because I'm from the West coast? Of Scotland? <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. Maybe. You can indulge the love of fried stuff by making it cool because you're in South of Spain. And of course it's cool. You've got right, sherry yes, yeah, yeah, going yeah, with yeah. it. You know, it's sunny. Actually that's where I grew up. So I, I totally uh, have, have the same love of the uh, calamares and the boquerones. Yes, what do you call those? It's like a fritter you get. It's like a thin fritter that has prawns in it, like whole small shrimp type things. And I should yeah. have taken a note of the name because they're amazing. I absolutely love them. Yeah. But you didn't become, I mean, obviously, you, you know, you have, you know, continued. And actually, I do remember your um, your your column in the, in the Guardian and the book because I was, you know, I'm only a couple of years younger than you and I've a fan in fact you're the first person that I've ever interviewed that I used to have a crush on apart from John Simpson everyone fancies everyone fancies John oh, Simpson on, I've got a stiff competition there <laughs> oh yeah with John I mean John yeah. Simpson I mean obviously yeah. he's you know he wins any competition yeah. um but yeah so I followed your you know career and, and progression but actually something I, I didn't know early on is that you uh, when the band first began uh, taking off you went to Sweden for a while Yes, that's right. We, we went over to Malmo to record our first album. We recorded our first single with uh, Tour Your. I, I can never pronounce the name properly. Like it's. I remember when he introduced his, himself, he sort of said, "Hello, my name is," and he pronounces Tour. I think is is the correct pronunciation. <laughs> like, but you are all going to call me Tor because you cannot pronounce Swedish. <laughs> and. Uh, Tor was a great guy, and at the time he lived in what's the town near Brighton? Oh, it's near you. Uh, yeah, uh, where, where they have the ceremony where they have all the sort of Lewis. And- Lewis. Lewis. Yes. Yeah, yeah. He, he stayed in Lewis. So we recorded in London, mixed in Lewis. Then he moved back to Malmo, so we, we went over there to record the album with him. I loved it over there. It's it's, it's a it's a great city. Even the experience of going there was. It felt very exotic to me at the time and, and quite thrilling because we took the easy jet over to Copenhagen and you fly in over the bay, over the sort of like stretch of water, which is between Copenhagen and Malmo, because Malmo is on the southern tip of Sweden. And as you fly over the bay, you see the incredible sort of like 
road and rail link that they have between the two, which is this road, a bridge rather, which continues over half of the uh, expanse of water, then disappears into a tunnel, which comes out the other side. And so we flew into Copenhagen. Tor came through to meet us. We went over this bridge and tunnel and, and went to, to Malmo. And I, I love Malmo. I, I, I like Swedish culture and uh, uh, Malmo was a good experience. The, the, the people we worked with were cool. I particularly, you know what I particularly liked was uh, the bicycle culture that was over there. It felt that there was a, a reversal of the, of the hierarchy within the UK. And as somebody who'd always read, ridden a bike and loved riding a bike, I always find it a bit frustrating how the, the hierarchy had always been like motor vehicle of four wheels, motor vehicle, two wheels, pedestrian, and then cyclist way below any of that. Mm. Whereas in Malmo, they had this uh, uh, strong cycling infrastructure that was built in that you could cycle along without worrying about like sort of colliding with a pedestrian or worse being like struck by a car and thinking, I really loved it. And it was summertime when we were there. I, I remember spending a lot of time on the artificial beach that they have. Some wealthy industrialist in the 19th century decided that his hometown in Malmo needed a beach. So he literally carted boatloads of sand, God knows from where, and created a beach in Malmo. And very nice it is too. I love that. I, you know, if I was a you know billionaire th- philanthropist, I'd totally be creating beaches anywhere, left, right and centre. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But better than sending yourself and your pals into space. Yeah, so that too. Um, it was that when you got the sense that the band was taking off. When when did you get that sense? Was it when that that happened? It must have been incredible, no? I, I remember the, the, there was a rehearsal that we did when originally when the band started off. Uh, Nick was playing drums and Paul was playing guitar, and Paul can't really play guitar. <laughs> and Nick played. If you imagine Mo Tucker, he used to play standing up like like Mo Tucker, and if you imagine Mo Tucker was no coordination or sense of rhythm <laughs> was in the beginning. Um, so it sounded terrible. And then one day we can like, we, uh, I managed to persuade them to switch roles because Paul's an amazing drummer and Nick's great on any stringed instrument. And suddenly it sounded great. So that was kind of maybe the moment where I thought, oh, this band sounds kind of all right. But even then, like even when we were recording the album, I, you know, I, I presumed we'd, have some kind of maybe cult status or something like that. But uh, I, I never really foresaw what, what was going to happen with the band. You know, I, I've seen friends of mine from Glasgow uh, have success, uh, like, like uh, my friends in Bell and Sebastian and, and Mogwai and Urusai Atsura and, and, and these kind of bands who, who'd done so. And I, I figured that it'd be something along those kind of lines, like, like we might sell a few hundred albums maybe if we're really lucky and and get to tour a bit and how exciting that would be but um I wasn't really thinking much beyond that it did it from the outside point of view it really really seemed to kick off very very quickly in fact I interviewed you on after was it the 2005 Mercury was that the one you won 2005 oh uh, 2000 oh gosh 2004 2004 yes I interviewed I was one of those people waiting outside you know afterwards they go down yeah yeah (laughs) didn't spot me in the because I remember her you were in the crowd it was a little bit of a blur that evening (laughs) (laughs) I remember it was it was was you guys maybe the Kaiser Chiefs people like that I think were in the, yeah, yeah, they might be a little bit later, but yes, I, I can't I, remember. Yeah, it was, I've done lots of them, but it was a good, it was a good yeah. year. I remember that. I'm trying to think who else was there. I remember Basement Jacks were there. That they, yeah, table next to us. Yeah, because I, I remember. I, I again, I, I presumed that we weren't going to win it. Like I, I, I remember sitting at the table, just kind of like, oh, I wish they'd hurry up and announce it, uh, just so that we can uh, get to go away or, or go on to the next thing or whatever. And then. It was one of those strange moments because they're like, "Did I just hear that right? Did he say? Did he say the wrong thing there?" And then, and and not having prepared anything and having absolutely nothing to say other than uh, thinking, "Oh bloody hell, there's Brian!" You know. <laughs> <laughs> It must be awful, though, sitting there, like, waiting. Luckily, I've never been nominated for any awards, so I have no idea what it's like <laughs> to sit there in anticipation with the, you know, perfecting the, I don't really want to win, I'm quite nonchalant, you know, when they put the camera on you. It's funny, like, like then, I, for that one, I, I really didn't think we were going to, I was con- just absolutely convinced we weren't. But a few months later, we did the Brits. And when, when you do the Brits, they tell you beforehand um. that you're going to win because, and you kind of know anyway because, 
all the cameras can like start feeling <laughs> around, your, around your table to capture that moment of shock and surprise. <laughs> so <laughs> anyone who's like, sitting next to you who's also been nominated, they're like, fuck you, seriously. Yeah. You know? <laughs> They've got to pretend to be, yeah. you know, to well, be anticipating thing, like, like, it. We, we, we were, we found it so funny that, that, that you had to go through this kind of like uh, charade. So for each of the ones that we run that year, like I made sure I had a, a piece of food on a fork, like going into my mouth, so that I could like, so like, fake a kind of like a look of shock, and like, like, I was like, oh, what me? <laughs> He's choking. He's choking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which actually yeah. brings me nicely on to something I found out about you doing my uh, intensive, extensive research, doing my bit of googling. Was that you've got a you've got a nut allergy, and actually this has been because I wanted to talk to you about touring and everything and, and mishaps along the road. Two mishaps that I found out is that you've you've been in hospital a couple of times on tour one of them was Budapest I think and then there's also yeah. something about getting arrested in Moscow but let's let's do oh, the okay. um let's do the, <laughs> the food nut allergy hospital Budapest experience one first yeah it's happened unfortunately more times than than uh it should have done on on tour because I'm, I'm very careful and like one of the first things I do on arriving in a new country is learning how to say, excuse me, are there peanuts in this? I have a severe allergy, <laughs> you know, and I usually have it written down on a piece of paper so I can, or, or on my phone or something now, uh, just so I can show people. There have been a few kind of like uh, bad experiences. There, there was that time in Budapest, they were great. Like there was a, a medical team on board and they, they, they jabbed me full of, uh, what's it, like- Adrenaline is it or something? Yeah, yeah, adrenaline is the initial thing that they stick into mm. you. And I, I was okay. I managed to do the show like five or six hours later. It was fine. I remember there was one time in, oh God, what is the name? Exit Festival in Serbia. Out the night before, I went to a restaurant. I remember having a salad and like ordering a salad and saying to the guy, oh no, I've got peanut allergy. Are you sure? Make sure there's no peanuts. Brought the salad out, no peanuts. Had a few mouths full and um, immediately... You can tell straight away when you have a reaction, like your mouth goes all funny and really itchy and you just get a, a sense of impending doom and panic. <laughs> and uh, I, was, I, I immediately started getting this, this feeling. And I, so I was, we called the, the guy over and said, look, uh, are you sure there's no peanuts in this? I really feel like I'm having a reaction. And the guy said, no, absolutely no peanuts. Uh, so the only thing is there's, there's peanut butter in the dressing, but no peanuts. I was oh like, my God. oh, you fucking idiot. Sorry, mm. I don't know. But like, I'm yeah, sorry. we can swear, um, do it. Oh, all right, yeah, yeah. Um, well, he's not yeah. going to be listening, so you're not going to offend him. You know, <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, he was a fucking. No, no, it might be his favorite podcast. I, I don't know. But, um, um, he's uh, sitting there right now, as in Budapest, yeah. listening to yes. Serbia. Listening. Oh, to oh, damn, that was me. The, that was me. The peanut butter. I should have known. <laughs> so, so, last. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I'm fortunate compared to a lot of people, like, like some people will go into an anaphylactic shock when, when, when it happens to them. I do go into like a mild shock and I, I, I'll, the worst thing is I just throw up really, really, really violently in a kind of um, exorcist. Yeah, it makes the exorcist <laughs> look a little tame. Like I, I, I do the full head rotation and projectile vomiting kind of thing. Um, there, 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 yeah, there was another time, like in, the only time I've ever had to cancel a gig was when it happened in, in Norway. I think it was Tromso one time. And uh, I had a different reaction. I didn't just throw up like my, you know, your uvula, the little dangly thing at the back of your throat. That, that swelled up and it was about the size of a golf ball. And the only way I could breathe was to like keep my head forward. Because if, if I put my head back, it just blocked up my whole windpipe. Oh, yeah. Horrible experience. Also, um, also when you're in other countries as well, I mean, the, the, one of the joys of traveling is that you do put yourself in unfamiliar and, and slightly vulnerable situations when you don't speak yeah. the language and everything. But you must feel a little bit extra vulnerable knowing that, you, you know, a peanut could could cause you or anything, you know, could cause you such a, a, a huge problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. And I, I, I guess... But I mean, there, there are so many things. If, if you travel and travel well, they put you into a vulnerable situation. You know, that's the good thing about traveling. It is uh, stepping outside the, the, the safety of uh, where you ought to be. And uh, I do love that sense of vulnerability and also the feeling of being lost in a country a little bit. And one of my favorite things to do on tour is to go for a walk. And I particularly loved it before smartphone days when you could go out 
and uh, wouldn't have a map with you and you kind of knew vaguely how to get back and you'd get a little bit lost. And particularly in countries where you do not know the alphabet and you can't read the signs properly, something intensely thrilling about that. I remember the, the first few times going over to Tokyo and, and taking the underground system and and going to pass the town and exploring. Oh, it's such a thrill, such a thrill. Like, like it feels like you're, you're yeah, going to another world. I, I look, and then discovering new alphabets. So we played in Tbilisi a couple of years ago and the Georgian alphabet, it's incredible. Like it's it's completely unrelated to, to the Latin alphabet or the Cyrillic alphabet and uh, uh, or any other alphabet I've ever seen. It's, it's, it's very, very beautiful, these kind of geometric shapes and, you really do feel like you're in another world when you see the uh, the script written around about you. Which ties me nicely into uh, getting arrested in Moscow. What happened there? Oh, yeah. It's funny talking about Russia, like considering what's going on. At the moment. I know. I know. I was wondering whether to, you know, to mention it or not. Uh, it, it, yeah, it's funny because like, like today... Um, it, it's, I have this kind of shadow hanging over it because I, I know people in, in Russia and Ukraine and ha- having been there uh, so many times over the, the band's life. And uh, yeah, it's such a tragedy, such an absolute tragedy. And we, we played in uh, Odessa and Kiev uh, in, in recent years and thinking of those beautiful cities and those amazing people in the night and also for russian people nobody wants it it's nobody it's, just just one crazy man wants it you know that's yeah it, it, that's, it. It, that's it is that, that, that's the word as well crazy completely insane criminally insane anyway um let, let's not dwell on that let, let's mm. let's celebrate the good sides and i have always loved going to russia as well you know like like uh, was always massively important for me and, and like like very influential on me as an artist and us as a band. Uh, so much of our visual aesthetic came from Russian art movements and uh, early songs. I wrote a song in, uh, sort of like based on the Master of Mar- Margarita by Bulgakov. And so it, it, I always loved Chekhov. It was always a big part of my life, basically. Mm. And so to go there for the first time was such a thrill. And going to Mayakovsky's apartment, which apparently Putin has, has closed down because Mayakovsky was considered by Putin and his like uh, to be too uh, transgressive. <laughs> and and, um, and so, it's, which makes me really feel really, really terrible. So anyway, love being over there, meeting people, experiencing it, uh, eating Georgian food for the first time. Wow, that was an experience. And, uh, and, and also doing the, uh, the Russian and Georgian toasts I'd never drunk so much vodka in my life as I did when I like had a meal with Russians and Georgians. And like, and th- th- you start with a you kind of like obvious toast, like, like uh, to our health, to our parents, to our families, to the future, to our countries. And then the toasts get more and more tenuous. Like, like it's to, to the, to the beautiful color of the napkins. <laughs> like, <laughs> to the way you part your hair, you know, <laughs> like, it's like any excuse for that. Yep. Anyway, so, <laughs> the, the, the first time I, I, I went over, I, I loved it. I had these great experiences. Um, I, I, I discovered the band Kino. I, I, yeah, I met so many good people. And then in the airport on the way back, I was checking in for my flight. And um, suddenly the guy at the check-in desk looked at me in a really weird way, picked up the phone, like quite an old-fashioned looking phone, said something in Russian and then didn't say anything else to me, just sat there looking at me. And I was like, kind of like, what, what's mm-hmm. happening? Like, do, do I need to wait for something? And he just kept on looking at me. And then within a couple of minutes, I was surrounded by uh, military police with Kalashnikovs. And I was like, what the hell is going on? Like, and again, it was, it was one of those moments, a little bit like winning the Mercury Prize. Like, like am I really here? Is, is, this, is this what's happening right now? But not, not quite as good as winning the Mercury Prize. Well, it's a bit more scary. It definitely felt like an experience. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is something new. And so I, I got pulled into a back room and there was a lot of talking in Russian, and uh, which I didn't understand. And a lot of very, very stern looks happening. And... Um, uh, and eventually I spoke to somebody and there was a confusion over my name. So there was a guy called Richard Tomlinson. I don't know if you remember this guy. He was a, a double, triple agent who was, he was like a, a British agent who went as a, became a double agent for the Russians and then eventually a triple agent back for the, for the British again. It was very complex. I think he was, I don't know what kind of character. Anyway, 
My full name is Alexander Paul Capranus Huntley. Capranus is my real family name, but my dad was adopted and he took my aunt's married name, which is Huntley. And so on my passport, it has all of those names on it. And this guy, Tomlinson, had taken out of some bizarre coincidence, had chosen as his alias the name Alexander Huntley. And so it flagged up in the security system this guy, this triple agent that was wanted by the state, that was due a good going over by the FSB, uh, was suddenly standing in front of them. And so, like, I had to, like, when I realized what it was, I had to argue my case and who I was. Like, I'm, I'm just some guy in a band. I've just done a couple <laughs> of gigs over here. Like, like, I'm, I'm, Look, I'll play honestly, something. <laughs> I'm honestly not a spy. Like, 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 ah, but that's what you would say if you were a spy. Of course, yeah. like, like, eventually, because the, the dates of birth didn't match up, so eventually they let off. But it meant from that point on for about the next year, lots of countries I'd go to, I, I, I got pulled aside and uh, questioned because I ended up on some kind of like international wanted list after that. So <laughs> traveling throughout 2004, five and six was, was, could be a bit of a pain in the neck sometimes. It's funny. It's so funny that I was thinking he stole your name, but then you stole Franz Ferdinand's name. So, you know, it's like oh, yeah. a, it's yeah, yeah. <laughs> a, 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 a bit of like East West appropriation all around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So postmodern in a way I can't quite <laughs> articulate. Right, yeah. So the, the touring, did it ever get too much? Does it get too much or do you enjoy it? No. I mean, traveling can be exhausting sometimes. Like, like I, I love traveling. I, I, I don't particularly enjoy sitting around in airports. Uh, um, I, I remember that's one of the big experiences that changed or big attitudes that changed as I, as I toured more. Like, I used to love going to the airport. And in fact, talking about that time going up to Malmo, I have, I have such strong memories of being very excited to be in Heathrow Terminal 3 heading over to Malmo. And uh, now, now I have the kind of like the approach to airports where I can like work out like how I can get there and spend the minimal amount of time in the airport. And sometimes that can be a little bit hairy uh, and, and I can just catch the plane. But um, yeah, I'd rather do that than hang about. Hang Hasn't about that changed? Airport. That's changed a little bit for me since the pandemic. I've started to really appreciate it again. I went to, um, well, it's again, I'm a single mum and I've got two small children. So traveling like through airports and stuff with them is quite stressful. But a few right. weeks ago, I went to see my brother in LA on my own. I got upgraded right. to Virgin Upper Class, which was just to die for. And well, I just, I enjoyed every single second. And I also think that's a post-pandemic thing. It's like, I'm good. this time last year, I was locked down on my own with two children, not at school, no bars, no restaurants, no cafes, no museums or art galleries, nothing, and just shitty cold weather outside. Fast forward to now, I'm at the airport, I'm having a glass of champagne, I'm flying over <laughs> to see my brother. This is, you know, it felt immense. You know, if you're operating at like a, you know, a sort of 50% happy, 50% just normal level, I was like, for the whole six days, you know, including the flight, every single moment I was operating at 80. I was like, yes. Right, right, and my brother's right. like, we're not having a, you know, we're only, you know, going out for a diner or standing in his kitchen, having a cup of tea. I'm like, I'm having the best time, you know. Yes, and yeah, the, yeah. the whole airport experience was even past that. I even got a National Express coach from Brighton to London. I can't remember the last to Heathrow because normally you get the train, but I thought, and oh, that's a quite direct route. Why have I never done it before? I got a National <laughs> Express. <laughs> and it was just, yeah. just, I enjoyed well, I, every, every I, second of it. I've got such strong memories of the National Express. That's where I used to get down to, to London from Glasgow quite often. Oh, man, those journeys were pretty intense. <laughs> yeah. You should do it again. I'm telling you what, I'm going back to the National it was Express. good, good. It was good. It was cheap. It was straight there. Not The trains are just pissing around at the moment. You know, it's not the same as it used to be. They've, right. they've, they're less. They've put on less services. So... Yeah, it's really though. I, I I do agree though. I, I do find myself savoring travel um, a lot more since the pandemic and and enjoying being there. And my my girlfriend is French, and uh, over New Year, like I had COVID over Christmas, so we couldn't see each other at that time. But over New Year, we wanted to to meet up. And um, uh, at the time, I wasn't allowed into France, and she wasn't allowed into the UK. But we were both allowed into Spain, so we managed to go over to Seville. And uh, uh, th th yeah, that's how I ended up there. And 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 being in Seville, oh my god! And just I did find myself doing that thing of really truly savoring it, and like so, like 
God damn, you know, like, like think of all those months where you just couldn't even go out the bloody house, you know, and, and how, how amazing it is to be walking under trees and having oranges land on your head. <laughs> you know, like, how good is that? That doesn't happen in Scotland. Unless someone's chucked them at you, you know, as you're walking down the street. Funny enough, I always say that about Spain and I always like tweet it or something because you'll see oranges everywhere. And like the only way that would happen here is if someone had a shopping disaster, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right, yes. I, I really hope That's we true. take that like going forward. I really hope we take that, you know, remember the the free. Of course, a lot of people, a lot of people lost a lot more, you know, people I, I know personally. But in terms of like the restrictions and the lack of freedoms, I really hope we we appreciate those again because we're yes. so lucky, you know, talking about Russia and Ukraine and we just are so lucky, aren't we? We, we really are in many ways, you know. Yeah, yeah, it really is. We, we, we do have to savour it when, when we have the opportunity to do it. And sometimes it is good to like sort of to savour it our senses to spirit as well. In a way we were talking about earlier when we were talking about the Ethiopian coffee ceremony. You know, I was talking earlier about Ethiopian, like this, the sense of, the, the, the smell of the rain. I have another strong sensation that comes back to mind just when you're talking there about savouring places. That time I went to Athens on my own, it was around about April and it had just rained the evening when I was there and the, the orange blossom was on the trees at that time. And uh, I was in Kolonaki, uh, just on the, the slopes of Mount Lysabetus, uh, the, the other big kind of hill opposite the, the Parthenon. And that smell of the rain and the orange blossom. Oh my goodness. Like it's, yeah, it's one of the most overwhelming sensations I've ever had in my life. And uh, yeah, it's good when we travel to take those moments to savor it. And maybe even to savor those moments that don't seem so exotic, like sitting in the, in the airport waiting areas. You know. Absolutely. Savor it all. It brings me, I feel like I could talk to you for ages and I'm missing like a thousand great travel stories, but um, I'm going to ask you my last question now. My last question is always about music because right. I believe very much that music and travel, I'm a huge music fan. In fact, this podcast is just a rip off of uh, desert Island discs, but for travel oh. instead of music, because <laughs> they won't let me present that. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah. Uh, have you done it? Have you done Desert Island Discs? No, I never have. I never oh, have. You need to do yeah. that. You need to do yeah. that. Yeah. Lauren's amazing as well. I think she's oh, such she's a good great. presenter. Yeah. yeah when she really... retires, um, she's younger than me, but she can give me a call. When she gets bored of it, <laughs> she can <laughs> yes. totally give me a call. Right, yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, my last question is all about, always about music because I believe that music and travel very much go hand in hand. We're talking mm. about those evocative memories, you know, those, in fact, the, the, the sounds, the smells and, and those feelings of travel. So I'm going to ask you to name one song that reminds you of a memorable moment, a bit like the Athens Blossom, Orange Blossom scent, yeah. but a song that was playing or that reminds you of a time and place of travel. What is that song and what is the, the moment? What is the story behind it? Ah, you know what? There's one that's just popped straight into my head, which I wasn't expecting to pop in. That's what I love about this question. Yeah, often, often it's yeah, not yeah. your favourite songs either. So don't think we're yeah. not going to judge you. <laughs> if yeah, it's like yeah, yeah. Agadoo, no, no. we're not going to judge you. <laughs> so um, when I was 18, uh, I drove to Glastonbury from Aberdeen in my car, which I'd been very kindly given by my grandfather, which was an old ladder. You know, the really old ones that look like a, a, like a bit like a brick or a child's drawing of a car. And I loved that car so much. It was, it was amazing. Uh, I drove down with three of my friends from Aberdeen, which is where I was living at the time. It was quite an adventure because the alternator broke on the car. And I... I, I didn't have a clue what an alternator was at that time. Like, like I, I'm, I'm not really mechanically minded. The alternator is the thing that gives the, the car the electricity. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's the generator thing. And uh, so the car were kept on running out of electricity. And so we had to like charge it all the way down, like stop off every few hours and charge the battery. Anyway, it was, it was a great experience. Really loved it. My, my, my friends were wonderful. And I remember we stopped off to see some other friends of ours in the Lake District on the way down and I have a strong memory of driving through the beautiful scenery there. And we had various tapes that we were listening to at the time, one of the ones, but again, in, in the age of the tape in the car, we didn't have that many tapes. He would listen to the same music again and again. And uh, one of them was a tape with, which had uh, Revolver on one side and Rubber Soul on the other. And the one that really comes to mind is, 
what's it called? Uh, there are places. It, it's I my favorite song in the world. It's my favorite song in the world. It's in my yes. life. In my life. Yes. In my life. From yes. Rubber Soul. I, I hear from Rubber Soul, and I I I love that song. It's it's a really beautiful, uh, poignant song, and. Uh, I remember, I, I do remember like sort of driving along and, and, and like sort of like having such a wonderful time with these people being in such a beautiful place and the sense of freedom that came with it as well and the, the sense of autonomy and like, so like we're going where we want to go, which is what a good road adventure should always have about it. And then as this was playing, kind of think, oh my goodness, this is, this is what I'm going to be doing in 30 years time, 32 years time. I'm going to be recalling this moment, this, 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 this song is capturing right now what my future is going to be, and uh, it, it was it was it was a very sweet and, and, and lovely moment, and it's a lovely moment recalling it right now. Uh, have you thought about it since? That, that, I, I have thought about that uh, that journey a few times, and I, I am still in touch with the uh, the people I went on the journey with, and we, we do write to each other occasionally, and uh, um, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I have very good memories of it. Yeah, I, I absolutely love that song. You've chosen my favourite song, and I normally end it there, but I do have to very quickly ask you, what was Lastonbury like at 18? It was incredible. It was incredible. We were totally, totally skint. Like, like we went down, like, like it kind of quite naively. Like, we, we'd got the tickets a few days beforehand, and we had enough money to get down there, more or less. And we had no money for food when we got there, really. And I, I remember we... Uh, we worked out that in front of a lot of the food stalls, people would drop pound coins. In front of the, uh, the food stall, they're picking up pound coins so we could get something to eat. But we had an amazing time, like, like a really incredible time. And there were so many wonderful musicians playing there. I remember seeing Dallas Soul, uh, the Happy Mondays, The Cure. It, it was a really, an, an incredible lineup. And, uh, and, and also just the... The, the experience of um, the, the people and, and, and Glastonbury. So that was in 1989 or was it 1990? No, 1990. It was 1990. And um, yeah, Glastonbury was pretty wild then. It was, it was when it was truly anarchic and uh, I loved it. It was a, a yeah, a, a wonderful experience. Did you ever think, I was going to say, did you ever think you might play when you're there? You're a musician already at that point. Did you have visions of playing there one day? Yeah, I was. I was writing songs at that time, um, and and I, I loved it. But I don't know. I I I, I couldn't imagine myself. It just seemed like another world. It just seemed like another universe uh, than being up there and playing it. I, I guess like it it seemed as unlikely as traveling to Georgia, Tokyo, Moscow, São Paulo, all the places that the band have taken me. You know, like. Um, it seemed like a, a, a joyous fantasy, but maybe not one that would come true. <laughs> Thank you so much, Alex. I really loved that conversation. It felt like we were sitting in a pub uh, having a chat and uh, really enjoyed it. And I hope you did too. We will be back very soon with some more amazing guests. See you then. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.